Our scripture reading today is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Can, can you hear me all right? I was having major troubles trying to fit the Britney Spears microphone. Um, during the reading, but yeah, look, thanks for doing the reading. Um, That was great. Uh, How about I pray and then let's jump into it. Lord, I just, uh, I want to thank you for this morning. Um, I want to thank you that you're a good God, you're a holy God, and uh, we can meet with you this morning um, as your people. Um, I want to pray that that, uh, Lee is getting a good rest um, during this little holiday time. and uh, I just, uh, I'm grateful to be back here again um, with your church here in Fremantle. And we pray, Lord, we ask for your spirit that you would open our hearts and minds uh, to hear what you have to say to us. I pray that you would show us your glory and a glimpse of your eternal perspective on things that are happening in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So, I remember there was this one time I went to a, a barbecue. I was, I was hanging out with some mates and um, his family, one of the friends was having a, they were like having a family barbecue and we kind of had to, we were obligated to drop in, right? So um, I was there chatting to his brother and his dad and some other family members and um, I never forget this hangout because we were only there 30 minutes but my ears were absolutely burning by the end of it. It was, it was painful, right? And the reason it was is because they seem to have a habit, some of them, of blaspheming, of using the Lord's name in vain. It was just 
it was all negative and it was just Jesus Christ this, Jesus Christ that. And I was hearing it again and again and again in conversation. It was like they interpret everything negatively and that was the word they used. And it stuck with me because I thought, man, these kids that are growing up in this environment, they probably think Jesus, the name of Jesus Christ is a swear word, is a curse word. Um, now, thankfully, after 30 minutes, my mate wanted to leave as much as I did. So we got out of there. Um, but nonetheless, it stuck with me. And I don't think I'm particularly prudish about this either. I mean, I used to play basketball for years and um, the fellas would say all kinds of words and so would I sometimes. And I would have to repent of that later. Um, but there's something about hearing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that we come here and we worship in the songs and that we pray to every day. Hearing his name used with that kind of connotation is, it was difficult. I found it quite difficult to ignore. And I have uh, pulled closer friends up on that kind of thing before because I said, look, if we're going to stay mates, um, that's the one word I, I really would appreciate if you don't say. Um, and so, I mean, it's different for us in the church. We praise Him, we worship Him, but generally I feel like in our culture there is uh, a lack of reverence for Jesus Christ. Um, and that's fair enough if they don't believe, right? But for us as Christians, sometimes we can also have a very small view of Jesus ourselves. Um, like the little Jesus, it's on like the cross pendant and I'm not having a crack at anyone that has those kind of necklaces and, you know, all Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox. But sometimes we can have this really tiny little view of Jesus, like He comes with us, He's our, um, he's our like, safety net, you know? Like, if I need something, I can pray to Him, or if I die, hopefully I'll go to heaven, you know? Like, this little view where He serves me and that's it. What we have in this passage uh, is very different to that. And the original church that this letter was written to, these, these churches outside of Rome, likely uh, in the 60s AD, um, were tempted to sort of drift, they were drifting from the faith and were tempted to revert to their pre-conversion life, whether that was Judaism or, or paganism. So in, in quite drastic contrast to that, in the first four verses here in the intro of, of Hebrews 1, we have this almost enthronement type scene, you know, like if you've ever seen the Queen knight someone or, um, you know, you've watched a TV show or a movie where someone becomes the king. It's like before the whole host of angels in heaven, we see the Son of God who was eternal and then came down as incarnate to make a way of salvation for rebellious human beings. He is then exalted to the right hand of the Father to share the throne with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's, it's an incredible uh, kind of picture that we get there, that the Son of God who created the stars and, you know, the galaxy and the millions of cells in our bodies came down and made Himself known to us face to face and now He reigns on high over all the earth. So in verse, um, in verse uh, 3, it says that He... Uh, verse, end of verse 2, it says that He created the world... And then into verse 3, it says that He upholds the universe by His powerful Word. That's a pretty incredible thing, that the Son of God reigns and He is organising, He is managing the things that are going on in this world right now, even though when we look around us, sometimes it doesn't always seem like that. It's kind of like with the view we get in Genesis 1 or something, where the Creator God in the Old Testament we're starting to get a picture of how that connects with the new. 
So even in uh, Colossians 1.16, it says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And so some people have preached a, a whole message just on these first four verses, or even a whole series, right? But um, a lot of the heavy or like big themes that are introduced here are addressed later in the book, so I'm not going to do that. But I also want to make uh, special attention, I want to draw your attention to verse 1, where it says, God has spoken. So it says, long ago, in the past, in the old covenant, through the prophets, through King David... God spoke to the people of Israel and it was in different ways and at different times and yet he says now God has spoken in his son. There was a definitive speaking of God to human beings. So it went from multiple messages who were all pointing to this one to come, that God is coming, the son of God is coming, um, the descendant of King David is coming and then the author of Hebrews says he has come, he has definitively spoken, he has acted with finality and that changes everything in this world. Um, this is the clearest revelation humankind has ever received of God, is when He sent His own Son. That the God that we know of in the Bible is not silent. He makes Himself known to creation. That is, that is key for us to understand. And so He enters human history by the Son, and it's like the Old Testament was um, like a paper trail of all these prophecies, all of these things that were going to point towards a Messiah. And the people of Israel, there were so many wonderful things. They thought maybe, you know, there'd be one or two people or three people that would fulfill this. But they all come together in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. There is just nothing else like it, in, uh, you know, in terms of religious or philosophical ideas. It, it stands alone. And so we have this clear, historical, reliable evidence that the Son of God, this God-man, Jesus Christ, entered human history and that He is who He said He is and He has now been exalted to the right hand of God. It's big stuff for our minds to comprehend, but it, it's a wonderful truth that we get here. And furthermore than that, there's a couple of things about His incarnation. So if we learn that He's the Creator God and He is eternal and He has this eternal godly nature and yet He comes down, the first thing is He is the radiance of God's glory. So it's like He, in His 33 years, but especially His three years or thereabouts of ministry, He was reflecting God's glory to the people around Him. John's Gospel says He was the light of the world. But furthermore, it says He is the exact imprint of God the Father, that God's very being, His nature, His attributes, what He is like, was displayed most fully in the Son of God, in Jesus Christ Himself. So the, the prophets were seeing things in part and then the Son of God has given us the complete picture, the fulfilment of that. So He has come near and He has spoken the final word of salvation definitively. But also what that means is when it says in verse... Um, Three, that he made purification for sins. Obviously, we pick up on that and we, we go, okay, that, that's important to the gospel, right? The purification of sins. This was a once and for all definitive action of the Son of God on behalf of sinful humanity. 
So therefore, no repetition was necessary. The, the Old Testament covenant was based on, you know, the temple and, and the, um, the Levitical priests, you know, sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats to make atonement for the sins. What we have here is the definitive God has spoken, the definitive action of the Son, who, uh, unlike the priest, offered himself. It's by his blood that uh, there is this glorious unending debt paid for the sin of the world. So let me give you an illustration. So maybe back in, in ancient times, you know, you'd have the emperor or the king and they would um, mostly be unknown to the everyday person, right? Um, back in those days, there was no Twitter feeds and, and news reports and stuff like that. It was just, um, you know, you would see the image of the king on the coin, perhaps. Um, so like the, the money would have this little sketch of the king's face and maybe it would change every few years when they released more, more coins. Um, or maybe, maybe they'd hear rumours about what the king is like by the people who had to appear before him or who worked in the palace or, you know, whatever. They just, the average villager, the average person in that city would not know the king well, right? They would have just, they'd have a vague idea. And yet if an event happened where the king comes down for a parade through the city or, you know, he actually comes down to make a speech, um, perhaps even share a meal with some commoners, right? Can you imagine that when they say, wow, this is the king in the flesh, this is the full embodiment of who he is and they can observe what he's actually like? Some people might have some critical views and say, you know, oh man, he, he seems like he's a bit arrogant or he's a bit of a sleaze or, um, you know, maybe others say, oh, he's really respectful um, but it's not until you see the king in the flesh that you really go, okay, well, we can start to get a feel for what he's like when we meet someone, as opposed to just this little sketch, this vague outline on these little coins with his face on it. I mean, in, in terms of his appearance, maybe some people would say, damn, the king's gotten fat in five years. Or if he's looking pretty good, maybe they would, you know, they'd say, well, damn, has the king been doing CrossFit? Like, that's the kind of thing that you don't really know until you see them in the flesh. And so what we have in verse 1 and 2 is this sort of transition. We learn that the knowledge of God, the God of the Old Testament, who created the heavens and the earth and made himself known to the people of Israel, he is the God that makes himself known definitively in his son Jesus. His exact nature, the very embodiment of God, we learn about God's plan for healing and restoration of this earth his declaration of the kingdom of God here on earth as it is in heaven. Um, you know, he, he, uh, he is loving, he is patient, he is kind and he exerted power over all, um, all nature. He just showed full authority on the earth during this time. But further to that, we realise that he was on this special mission to make a way to save a people for himself one that dealt with sin, one that dealt with the rebellious heart problem that the old covenant couldn't fix. So therefore, it's possible for us to know God, but not only have a relationship with Him, but, but to love Him and enjoy Him forever. Now, you may wonder when you look at the second half of this passage, why does He mention angels? What's the deal with that, right? That brings up a whole other topic of conversation. In verses 5 and 13, he says, um, for which, to which of the angels did God ever say? And, and so he sort of compares and contrasts them with this glorious picture of the Son of God. 
the one that who, who is eternal and then incarnate and then is now exalted. Now, some people have suggested that the mention of the angels here is that maybe, you know, like these, these churches were guilty of angel worship or something wacky like that, but I just don't see any evidence in the text for that at all. Um, the thing is, most first century Jews had a very high view of angels. Now, some took this too far and said, you know, angels in the spiritual realm, you know, rule nations and um, have this special, special role, but mostly what it's tied to is the author's view of comparing the new covenant, the new covenant in Jesus Christ to the old one. And the angels were God's mediators and messengers all throughout the Old Testament. We read them, uh, read about them guarding God's people, protecting them, um, helping them in their military battles um, under Joshua. And so, uh, in particular, they're involved in the giving of the law to Moses in Mount Sinai. And that, they were kind of important in that. And so the angels almost represent um, this good to greater argument. It's not negative. It's not like he's saying, oh, angels are a, you know, are, are a bad thing. He's saying they have an, a positive but inferior role to the Son of God. Um, if the angels were good and helpful as mediators and messengers in the Old Testament, then how much greater is Jesus, the Son of God himself, as the mediator and the messenger for God in the new. So put simply, what we learn about angels in this passage is that they are created temporal beings that worship God and serve Him and His people. And, I mean, it's worth saying something here, that often we think about heaven, we think about God, especially when we're talking about Jesus' enthronement on high, that heaven is this distant place in like another world or another galaxy, but the, the Bible doesn't seem to give us that picture. Now, it's difficult for us to get our heads around, I'll grant you that, but um, it's as though there's almost like another dimension, that in, in Genesis 1-1, where it says God created the heavens and the earth, it's as though there is a physical and a spiritual realm to this world that interact very closely, and that includes the work of God, and that includes the work of angels as they serve God and His people. And so, some people will deny any kind of spiritual activity happening in this world, uh, whereas others get infatuated with it and buy all the best-selling books, you know, like Dan Brown's Angels and Demons and, you know, any story about people dying and crossing over to the other side and giving us a peek behind the curtains of the spiritual realm. I think the Bible tells us all that we need to know for now and one day the true glory and majesty of these things will be revealed. But ultimately, it seems like this spiritual realm interacts closely with the physical realm. There is a bit of a battle going on. But in contrast to the angels, in contrast to the old covenant, which was always pointing forward to the new, the author here in verses 5 and then 8 to 13 just chops through all of these Old Testament scriptures which speak of the exalted Son of God. We learn so much about him. So in verse 5, we have two quotations, one from Psalm 2, uh, which you won't have on the program, but you might have in your Bibles, as well as 2 Samuel 7.14. And so these prophecies were um, given to King David as though you are one day going to have a descendant who is going to change everything. And not just for the nation of Israel, but for all humankind. 
But what's incredible about these prophecies is they speak of this king being uh, God. So not just God's appointed king on earth, it's um, something greater than that. And so in verses 8 to 13, we, have, we learn that he is divine, that he is called God in verse 8. Um, we learn that he has absolute authority, uh, where it says he sits on a throne, um, he has a scepter, so a staff, um, and he rules his kingdom. He is a ruler that loves justice and hates wickedness. And also, as we had in the introduction, he is eternal. It says, your throne, O God, lasts forever and ever. It says he laid, uh, where is it, verse 10, he laid the foundations of the heavens and the earth. Um, despite this corrupt world perishing, he remains the same, he remains eternal, eternally God. But also that at the end of this age, one day Christ is going to return, he's going to bring all things together in him and roll up this creation like a garment, it says, like a blanket as he brings in the new heavens and new earth to be with his people forever. It's pretty extraordinary stuff. So notably, none of these things were ever said about angels. And I, don't, I do not see how these Old Testament prophecies could possibly refer to merely an earthly person, merely an earthly king. It's, it's, it's too great for that. But lastly, and this is my main point, in verse 13, as was alluded to in verse 3, it says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And just like in verse 3, it said, After the eternal Son of God had come into the world and made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So these are both allusions to Psalm 110. And throughout the whole book of Hebrews, which our Bible study ploughed through last year for nine months. This comes up again and again and again. It was vital to the early church's understanding of who Jesus, the Son of God, was and is. So he was the exact representation of God here on earth and then he sat down. He made purification for sins and then he sat down. He, he displayed the radiance of the glory of God here on earth 2,000 years ago and then he sat down on the throne a place of absolute divine authority and sovereignty, which he shares with God, the Father. And so there's a few things to take from this, but it, I also want to make note of the fact that he says, until I make your enemies. So we live in the church age. What Jesus said about the church age has continued to ring true, which I think further verifies the case for his lordship. So if God's enemies haven't been completely defeated yet, that on the cross he defeated Satan, sin and death and took away their power, as James was telling us earlier, the church is still suffering persecution. I mean, God's enemies are still being put under his um, feet. What we have here is, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that there are wars and rumours of wars. We shouldn't be surprised that there's a worldwide pandemic that we've still got health issues, that COVID-19 is still affecting people in the church as much as outside the church. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by violent behaviour, selfish behaviour, people buying up all the toilet paper in the stores out of panic. And yet, despite this, King Jesus is sovereign. That is the truth. The big idea for my sermon this morning is that the Son of God reigns 
And we have to know that that is a truly biblical perspective. If He is our Lord and ultimate authority, the best thing we can do is submit to His good and perfect will. But also, as we struggle to understand the madness that we're seeing in this world, where we've got millions of people, if you turn on the news or, you know, go online, millions of people acting like they're the king of the universe. They know best and everyone's just competing and fighting like you've got all these little mini-gods trying to assert their own will and authority. And in the end, it's just a mess. There's just confusion. There's just fear and sin. We need to acknowledge that Jesus is our Saviour and our Lord and that what we have in the Word of God here and by His Spirit as He works in us and through us is sufficient for this life right now. I believe, as I said earlier, that He's a relational God and so perhaps the mess and the confusion would be worse if Jesus wasn't upholding it. But also He's pursuing people with the good news of the Gospel, that He has made purification for sins and that one day we can be with Him for all eternity and the, the pain and the suffering and the trial we experience in this life will will be worth it to be with Him forever. The Kingdom of God is under the radar. It is infiltrating through relational ways. It is a Kingdom of love and humility, of forgiveness and suffering. It's not a Kingdom like the Kingdoms of this world where it's by violence and vengeance and pride and hate. You know what I mean? It's different to that. So let me finish with this. If we have a small Jesus, a small view of Jesus, like the cross pendant I mentioned at the start, this weak, powerless Jesus that is basically there for our every whim, then, I mean, we're going to drift from the faith. It is, it is an unbiblical view. Other religions will give Jesus honour and say, yeah, yeah, okay, he was a pretty special guy and yeah, we'll admit he had a big impact 2,000 years ago, but they'll say he's not the son of God. But the Bible very clearly affirms it. And this is one of the most um, powerful passages for that. We cannot hold to this small view of Jesus because, uh, I mean, this passage leaves no space for cheap grace, as though we can just keep living however we want to. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter. Christ is going to be cool with all the unrepentant sin in our lives. We can't do that. There is no room for acting like we're Lord of our lives. The most... um, liberating thing is to surrender our hearts to Christ and let Him rule in our hearts, let Him rule in our actions. That's the way it was designed to be. So in in contrast to this little cross-pendant view of Jesus, consider the Christ Redeemer statue in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, all right? Um, It's 38 metres tall, it weighs more than a tonne and it stands there up on the... um, on the huge uh, hill outside of the city, just standing over the city in this like this awesome, you know, it, it's a tourist attraction because it inspires reverence and awe, right? Now, <clears throat> one of my pet peeves is that um, too much Christian art looks like Caucasian Jesus, and I mean this one's not bad, but he doesn't—he still doesn't look like first-century rugged Middle Eastern carpenter Jewish Jesus. But even this big, glorious. Uh, statue standing over the city for where um, throughout this massive city where millions of people live they can look up and see Christ the Redeemer standing there 
even that does not seem to do justice to the true reality of the picture we get in Hebrews 12 and Revelation 5, where all of God's people of every tribe and tongue and nation are just in an inexpressible joy worshipping Him, praising Him, singing praise to Him in the new heavenly city. That is the glory He is due. So my main point is, again, that the Son of God reigns from heaven. He is not still a baby in a manger. He is not still a broken man hanging from the cross, though those are important things to remember, and we do regularly. But that's not where He is now. He is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. He is the Son of God who reigns with absolute authority, absolute sovereignty, and absolute power. So as Christians, we are never wholly defenceless in this world. We know that He cares for us. This is a comforting reality. I want this to be a comforting reality, not just a theological doctrine that we go, oh, okay, cool, and walk out of here. So ultimately, when we leave here today, I want us to be reminded that He is our hope and our help because He is the Son of God who reigns. He is our help right now in the midst of the crazy stuff we're experiencing in 2020, but He is also our hope for the future when He will come back and make a new heavens and a new earth. So let's not leave here and put our hope in just the vaccine or just a return to normal or a new normal. Or let's not just put all our hope in the economy coming back or our health or our relationships or our work. Once again, those are good things, but our ultimate hope needs to be in the Son of God, the one who came down and definitively spoke to us. He made purification for sin so that we can know Him and live in relationship with Him. He is our ultimate hope and our help in the here and now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank You for who You are. Um, I pray that in some way through myself as just your imperfect messenger, Lord God, as uh, despite our finite human minds, that we would have caught a glimpse of your glory as to the true spiritual reality and nature and understanding and knowledge of who you are, Lord God. Um, I want to thank you that you've made yourself definitively known to us in your Son and that you rescued us despite our rebellion and sinfulness. Lord, if we have questions, I encourage you I ask you to encourage us to find answers because there are good ones out there. But also thank you that in the midst of some things that we don't always understand, we have your word, we have your spirit, we have communion with one another as we acknowledge you as our king here every Sunday morning. And we thank you that there is good evidence that you lived and you died and you rose again 2,000 years ago and that that is the absolute climax of all human history. Please help us to worship you with all that we have and all that we are in a way that um, has real reverence and awe for who you are. Thank you for your love, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.